Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at Christian intentional community again, because it is such an important topic. We have with us Dr. Mark Killian, professor of sociology at Whitworth University and the author of Religious Vitality in Christian Intentional Communities, a Comparative Ethnographic Study. Dr. Killian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. All right. So if we could start with just your own brief background related to your theology or your church tradition, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So um, I uh, was raised in a, a mainline United Methodist Church. Uh, but I had a what I call a, a re- reaffiliation experience in high school through a parachurch ministry um, that really kind of brought me into evangelicalism. Um, and so spiritually, I was, you know, uh, raised within this uh, kind of the evangelical community. I went to college uh, to participate uh, in evangelical ministries um, and ended up after college uh, planting churches. And uh, it was during my my second church plant experience that um, I started to see some things that didn't quite mesh up with my um, uh, evangelical theology. And so I wanted to investigate this more, ended up in a Ph.D. program in sociology um, and really have a a vision and a calling to use uh, that um, education and the understanding of a social scientific study of religion to help churches, to, to uh, make churches more vital, um, uh, which is really, really important given how churches are operating today and the recession uh, in, in attendance and, and number of people adhering to, um, you know, Christian theology. Um, I uh, definitely uh, come from a more Reformed background. I'm uh, currently uh, part of a uh, Presbyterian church uh, in the town that I exist in. Uh, I, I am not officially an, um, uh, an member because I, I don't want to be called into session. Um, uh, so I, I try uh, to um, uh, participate as much as I can without actually being a, a full member. Uh, but I feel very comfortable in a Presbyterian um, liturgy um, and within you know, Reformed theology. All right. And uh, so uh, your book is about not just intentional communities, but specifically re- religious vitality. So how would you define religious vitality? Yeah. So, I mean, the best way I, I describe it and how I describe it to churches is, you know, we could think of vitality really in two ways. One, which often people think of vitality as, is is growth, is people coming and joining a religious organization. However, I think that that's pretty limiting in terms of how we should think about um, vitality within congregations. There is growth, there is the joining, but there's also the staying. Um, There are people who are committed to a congregation, to a church, to a community. And I think that staying often gets you know, lost in the mix when it comes to vitality. And um, so we have to think about not only the the people who are joining, but the people who are staying, the individual commitment to a congregation, to a a fellowship, to a community. Um, So one of the ways that I I kind of frame this is you can have church A and they could have uh, 100 people in the first year, 200 people in year two, and then 101 people in year three, right? So their ultimate growth over three years is 1%. 
you could have another church, which is 100 people in year one, 101 people in year two, 101 people in year three. Their growth is still 1%, but there's probably a whole lot more commitment, a whole lot more staying in that second church um, than there is in that first church, right? So that staying, that commitment is also very much a, uh, a large part of vitality. And uh, then how do you define a Christian, in intentional Christian community? And if you could distinguish the difference between congregational and non-congregational communities. Yeah, so, um, I mean, in the book, I give a very you know, academic definition. Uh, I think I, I, I say it's a group of three or more people who, uh, some of whom are unrelated by blood, um, who gather in a single household or related set of households. Uh, and here's the important part when you talk about Christian intentional communities. And these individuals who are gathered together, they attempt to engage in orthodox Christian theological values that aren't available either at society in large or within long established Christian um, um, traditions. Um, and so the idea here is you have the very intentional connection in space, a household or set of households. Um, and you have, it's not just a family, right? Um, you have unrelated um, blood. Um, but more importantly, that these intentional Christian communities are really what we consider within the sociology of religion, sects, S-E-C-T-S, um, right. that are breaking away or finding new ways of uh, faith expression that, again, aren't either available in society in large or, or aren't available in longstanding tradition. So that's the difference between like a congregation, which a typically uh, doesn't have that that's that typical space element that they're living in a household or or interconnected sets of households. Um, and two, that might not have that um, that 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 break breaking away from the, the long tradition. Um, so the intentionality um, it, it, that's the key part. It, it's not just Christian community. Lots of churches have Christian community, but it's intentional breaking away. It's intentional living together. Uh, and there's this geographic element um, that's a big part of the equation. And then you uh, briefly review the history of intentional communities. Um, yeah. It's been centuries of various experiments. Um, so if you could go over those briefly and also the, what you consider the five waves of in Christian intentional communities here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. So definitely there's, there's a long history. I mean, this goes back to the Qumran, right, in, in uh, uh, ancient Israel. Um, and you have, you know, various, um, uh, uh, you know, the Desert Father sects that were, you know, breaking off of uh, the early church and, uh, finding communities within um, uh, Egypt and within the Middle East. Um, and so you, you, you have this long history um, within, and this is debatable, uh, but, but kind of uh, within the United States, how I see it is that there have been these five waves. Now, when I talk about a wave, what I'm talking about is that you see this you know, tremendous growth of intentional community formation with uh, also tremendous recession. So there's a big spike 
and then all of a sudden the communities don't uh, many of the communities don't survive. There have been uh, communities that that do survive. Um, so, for example, you know, going back in, into the United States history, you have a number of intentional communities uh, that formed around um, uh, the beginning of uh, the United States. Uh, and these are what I call the colonial communities, the Shakers uh, being uh, the, the kind of the quintessential um, Christian intentional community that was formed at that time. And the Shakers, uh, you know, really existed. I think the last Shaker actually died in the mid 20th century um, or even, even later. I don't know. But um, but definitely they uh, they were part of a number of different communities that popped up. A lot of them either institutionalized into congregations or they died out. Um, and so you have that colonial um, intentional community wave. Uh, and then you have kind of this wave in the 19th century that corresponds with manifest destiny. And you have a, a number of um, uh, communities that tangentially uh, might have been uh, Christian or um, took Christian traditions with them. Um, so this includes like Oneida, the Oneida community, which was a, uh, a, a what we consider a non-monogamous community. Um, uh, a polyamorous community, uh, Amana, uh, which is the, uh, I think the, um, community of true inspiration. Um, and, um, so these were communities that were popping up in the mid to late, uh, 19th century as, uh, the United States was expanding West. Um, and then in the early 20th century, you see another increase, uh, of, another wave of intentional community formation, particularly around industrialization. So um, Zion City, which was a intentional community that was formed north of Chicago. Um, uh, and it was a planned uh, community as well. And you have a lot of these uh, planned communities or uh, within urban planning, we call them garden cities. But this Zion City was a little bit different in that it was um, uh, architecturally planned. It was you know, in terms of the actual neighborhood, it was planned out, but it also had this uh, religious element, this Christian element to it, um, and uh, was fairly hierarchical. Uh, but that was very much in response to industrialization in Chicago at that time. So you have a number of, of communities form at that point. Um, and then uh, counterculture, um, which uh, I think for many people today, we kind of get our intentional community understanding from the countercultural movements um, uh, and Christian intentional communities that formed out of the, the counterculture. Uh, the 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 one that I'm most familiar with that still exists today is um, JPUSA, uh, which stands for Jesus People USA. That's also also in Chicago. Um, but you know, it was interesting. Uh, interviewing individuals who had been part of the Jesus people movement, that countercultural movement, and hearing about how they would bounce around to different uh, intentional communities. Uh, and they all had very similar um, uh, worldviews and perspectives, uh, particularly around the end times. And so the idea was uh, for many of those communities, a lot of these don't exist anymore, but for many of them, um, it was, uh, hey, why own everything? Uh, let's share everything in common because Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And um, so they were highly evangelistic as well because they would go out and, you know, find, uh, you know, somebody who was strung out um, 
part of the countercultural movement and say, hey, look, here's the deal. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. You got to get clean. Just sell all your stuff and come live with us because we're sharing it all together. Um, so that was another wave. Um, and the the fifth wave that I talk about that I try to capture in my book is the uh, what I really argue is a wave that happened in the early 2000s uh, and into 2000, um, up, really up to 2015. A lot of those communities have disappeared. Some still survive, um, but a lot of them have disappeared. Um, and uh, I, I, this latest uh, wave of, of community formation, I think, uh, can best be exemplified by the simple way. Uh, Shane Claiborne in, in Philadelphia that you had connections with Sojourners, which is a community that was formed, you know, in the in that countercultural wave. Um, and um, so there are a lot of communities that popped up in that kind of that simple way, simple way um, style. But again, a lot of them have uh, disbanded since then. Um, the two that I, uh, you know, visit and uh, do research in uh, with my book, um, they're both operating um, uh, still, um, albeit uh, one is is uh, has had a lot of turnover, and I'll talk about Philadelphia later, but uh, the other one has been pretty consistent, um, and that's the community Berea. Um, but but it's, 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 it's important to understand kind of that these waves often evolve around social change, dramatic social change, right? So creation of a nation, manifest destiny, industrialization, you know, countercultural revolution, and then you have more recently globalization. So uh, I think that's something that uh, I would hypothesize is, is correlated. Um, and uh, I think other people will see in the future when we have more social change, again, another wave of intentional community formation occurring. So perhaps uh, intentional communities are becoming more doctrinally sound over the years. A lot of those earlier ones weren't quite uh, orthodox. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what would you say then is the biblical basis for these intentional communities? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the biblical basis comes from uh, the book of Acts, um, and in particular, the, uh, really the first uh, six chapters of up until the calling of, of the deacons, uh, Acts four um, in particular that describes you know everyone meeting together um, and sharing everything in common, um, and um, the um, story of Ananias and Sapphira of of the the field and they didn't sell the field to support the community and um, yeah then that, that didn't turn out well for them. Um, <laughs> But uh, but those are some of the, that biblical basis of really going back to um, uh, a view of the first century church as having everything in common, as people living together, gathering uh, uh, today figuratively in the upper room to uh, eat and to um, share uh, material um, and to share faith, right? Now, what's interesting, of course, is most intentional communities don't place Acts 4 within a highly persecuted environment where the Romans were coming after um, all the, the Jesus followers. And so consequently, yeah, they had to kind of group together. And you have, you know, the widows who are taken care of um, in, um, in Acts 6 because, uh, you know, the men were dying. The men were being persecuted. The men were being put in prison. Um, so that that part tends to get lost uh, for intentional communities. But definitely, it's that 
um, that that vision of that of the the first century church after uh, the resurrection of Christ. And you've touched on this already, but what would you say are the essential components of Christian intentional communities? Yeah, so I mean, I think that one of the fear things is that you know they are finding something different, a way of life, a way of being that is different from society. Uh, so in this way, it's, it's they're very countercultural, uh, you know, throughout time as well as the communities I uh, studied here in the book. Uh, but also that they can't find in again that longstanding Christian tradition. So you think about um, uh, the communities I, I visited, and you know, one uh, was started by two uh, at the time. I think when they first started, I mean, they were late teens, maybe maybe they had hit, hit early twenties, but they came out of an uh, evangelical um, church youth group, uh, started their own Bible study, and they were really seeking out um, that Acts four vision. Uh, being together, living together, um, and uh, and they couldn't find that in other places. They couldn't find that in in the church that they had uh, participated uh, uh, had participated in, um, and um, so they were looking for something very new. Uh, and they had they found support through other means, which I can go into. But um, I mean, I think that's kind of the key thing. One thing to understand, though, is when we talk about Christian intentional communities. Um, there is still an orthodoxy that that these aren't necessarily, as you mentioned, with some of the uh, like Oneida, right, which kind of went off of Christian orthodoxy and didn't, didn't match with Christian orthodoxy. A lot of the communities that uh, were established within the early uh, 2000s, early 21st century, they were very much uh Christian Orthodox. Now, they spanned different theologies and different perspectives, but very much committed to, um, uh, you know, a theology that's based on the Trinity, uh, theology that recognizes the resurrection of Jesus, um, and um, uh, followed, you know, to the best of their interpretation, what we'd consider orthodox uh, theological principles. So uh, those, uh, some of the strengths then you're talking about, what are some of the, the core weaknesses that seem to keep popping up over and over again in yeah. just in the intentional communities? Yeah, so there's a reason why these uh, communities will pop up and then a lot of them will die off pretty quickly. I mean, within four years. Uh, the biggest thing is that they are countercultural. Uh, living in an intentional community is, uh, you, you sacrifice privacy. It's a very public life. Um, and you are constantly being watched. Um, now, some people do fine in that. Um, others uh, have a hard time uh, operating where you can't find any sort of privacy. Um, and even if, and again, we'll get into kind of the, the variations of uh, intentional communities, but even if you have a community that doesn't live in one household, uh, but maybe has multiple sets of households, uh, and they have, you know, private property, but they live within three blocks of each other, right? That's still very, very public life. Um, and so an example is when I would do interviews uh, with both communities, I, I always had to interview um, female participants in public spaces, because even if I were to go to, uh, let's say, Berea, 
uh, which they lived in a, a, a many different households with most of them within three blocks. You know, the question is, oh, why is Mark going into so-and-so's house? Right? It's a very public life. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing uh, that uh, intentional communities struggle with. Um, the other thing is just, you know, it's novel because it's it's something that you can't find anywhere else it's like oh this is a great idea right we're following acts four we're living out the first century vision and then you get into it and you're like oh this is what it is and you have all these personality conflicts and who who does what in this um who who cleans and who doesn't and so that could be a problem as well so very practical things that um make intentional community living hard um the long-standing communities have figured it out um, they they know how to operate and they have adjusted, um, but that that takes time. That takes time, and it's it's the exception um, uh, more than it is the rule. Right, and we'll get more later into authority and the issue of control, which is a big factor. Yeah. Um, so, what would you say? Um, you're looking at the causes of uh, religious uh, vitality. So, what makes churches? And Christian communities thrive, and in particular, you have a way of looking at it through structural, organizational, and individual uh, explanations for religious vitality. So yeah. how do you see that? Yeah, so um, within the sociology of religion, and really the social science of religion, there's lots of questions about what gives uh, religious organizations vitality. Either people joining, people staying. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, and I'll go into a little bit, if you don't mind, Dennis, about my own church planting history. Um, uh, my second church plant um, uh, was, in my estimation, kind of unexplainable. Um, we went from 20 to 900 in two years. Um, and at the time, again, coming from this kind of evangelical perspective, uh, I was thinking, oh, this is the Holy Spirit at work, right? This is this is what I prayed for, um, and this is, you know, obviously we're being blessed here. Um, and, but at the same time, I also knew what I and the other two planters were doing behind the scenes, which is not something that I would uh, say was righteous. Uh, we were We were not thinking in terms of the kingdom. We were thinking in terms of ourselves. Um, and we're, we were being pretty crude, uh, frankly, about how we were going about this. We were not, um, it, it just wasn't um, a prayerful, humble um, uh, work behind the scenes. It was very much an aggressive uh, strategy that we had to, uh, frankly, steal people from the other mega churches around us. Um, and so uh, there's a point where we had, uh, me and the other two guys had a big explosion and I felt really um, um, convicted of what we were doing and but it didn't quite jive in my my evangelical mind of hey hey you get good only because you do good uh, we weren't doing good but we were getting good right um, mm -hmm. and uh, and so I, I I left that experience going what happened right I don't quite understand what was going on because it didn't mesh with uh, other things that I had uh, received and had experienced in my past. And that that's what drew me into the, the literature and sociology religion was to say, hey, there are these social scientific explanations 
or religious vitality. And a lot of churches have a hard time thinking about this, right? They, they want to say that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in some cases, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. There are some cases where we cannot explain the growth, either the commitment or the, the joining, um, through simple scientific means. Um, but the way I tend to frame it, um, and this meshes, I think, well with my theology, is that there's an order to creation. Um, and, you know, uh, churches exist on, they, in terms of their vitality, exist on a spectrum, and there's a bell curve. Um, and definitely there are cases where you just cannot explain the growth, and those are the Holy Spirit blessings. Um, but there are many cases where it seems as though you can explain the growth through these scientific theories, uh, social scientific theories. And as I look back at my church experience, my church planting experience, these theories definitely applied. I could see the relevance of these theories within my own experience. Now, what I try to do in the book is not necessarily introduce any theories, um, but or introduce a new theory, but really try to moderate the discussion between all the different theories that are out there. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some theories that uh, are more applicable, act, act, uh, that apply better in some situations, and there are some theories that don't apply. But definitely, if you look at churches and think about vitality in churches, these theories are working off of one another to help explain how churches are uh, have vitality and can be vital once again if they feel as though they're not. Um, so there's a, there's a list I can go through the different lists. Um, but I think there's some questions you'll have for that. Well, okay. So if you could just go over the big three, then the, um, organizational, structural and individual, how those work together. Yeah. So, um, so there's kind of these three different levels of analysis, right? So actually I'll, I'll start with uh, the structural. Um, so the structural is how, uh, religions sit within a, society's social structure. Uh, so how Christian churches and congregations and communities exist within the United States um, social structure. Uh, one of the things that I, when I talk with churches, um, uh, I have to address is if you want to really grow your church, have more kids. Fertility is the number one statistical factor of church growth um, and churches that grow have on average at least one more child uh, compared to the national fertility rate compared to churches that don't grow. So an example is uh, in the late 20th century, the Southern Baptist Convention on average had three children per family, whereas Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and uh, United Methodists had less than two. So what happened over that last 20th century? Southern Baptist Convention grew, right? and those mainline denominations shrunk. What's interesting is that the evangelical fertility rate just within the past decade has dropped below two now. So, you know, my, I I would never, uh, I I don't bet, so I would never place money on this, but my, uh, what my prediction is that 20 years from now, that same type of recession in evangelical churches will occur because simply there's just not enough kids replacing 
um, the current evangelical population. So that's a structural. It's like that's something that we can think of as existing above churches, existing above communities. Organizationally, um, churches exist within um, an economy. And I know church. When I say this, churches hate this, right? Because they don't want to think of themselves as as a business. But in in some ways, churches are the ultimate sharing economy. Right? It's it's you know there isn't charge. I don't I don't know many churches that charge um, for people to come on a Sunday morning, right? But they ask that you share your resources, um, and so it's it's very much part of that sharing economy. Consequently, it you know organization church organizations and religious organizations do have to think about uh, religious goods and religious services. What are we providing um, to potential customers? Uh, and those uh, churches that have had that numeric growth, that joining vitality, they often have religious goods and services that are culturally appropriated. Um, and sell really well. Um, those who uh, uh, have stay, this, the vitality of staying tend not to engage in that, hey, I'm going to compete for uh, these different um, constituencies. I have my church, I, they're vital, but they're still offering a religious good and service that keeps people there, right? That, that, no matter even if even if they're not engaging in the economy, they're still providing religious goods and services uh, based off of their culture, uh, based off of um, their you know that includes like worship style, um, based off of their ideology um, that keeps people there, and so that's important to to understand. So that's kind of organizationally, and then individually, um, if we kind of go down to the individual. Uh, level, people are uh, trying to find what the literature calls individuated expressions of religion. Um, that um, they want uh, a, a type of of faith, whether it's Christian faith or non-Christian faith or spirituality, that very much satisfies themselves. Um, and so they will go and seek that out. Um, and sometimes that involves being part of a community, sometimes that doesn't. Um, and this is where we get into that conversation of the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which is a very, you know, the, the, the segment of a religious people that is growing the most within the United States. Right. Um, and they will um, very much identify, for the most part, you know, this is not including agnostics and atheists, they will identify the religious nuns will identify as being religious. They will participate in uh, religious practices such as prayer, uh, scripture reading. Um, they will have said that they have been part of a religious community um, in the past, uh, but they are no longer affiliated with a religious community. Um, and so we have the nuns, right, which is very individuated um, uh, religious experience. And then from that, there's another segment uh, that my friend Josh Packer has looked at called the religious duns, um, which are people who very much like me, maybe had a, uh, an experience in an evangelical church or parachurch ministry, um, very much was committed, um, maybe even in ministry themselves, uh, but 
find themselves alienated and having no place to go and realize, you know what, I could do this by myself. Um, and so very much kind of focused on that individual, individuated faith. And so we have yeah. all these things kind of working together. Um, and my argument is there's no, uh, there's really no chicken or egg here, um, which is always a, a problem when we think about like, what's the origin, what's the ontology of all this, but then it's very much what I call structurated, um, which is these things are happening reciprocal, simultaneous, um, and it, it's better for us to identify that these things are all, you know, bouncing off of each other rather than separating one out and isolating that one saying, okay, we got to work on this thing. All right, that makes a lot of sense. And then uh, so much of what draws people to intentional communities is their view of the world. So can you talk about the relationship to the world, the greater society, the greater church also, yeah. in view of the um, the spirit of alienation or um, mm-hmm. theme of alienation that you talk about? Yeah, yeah. So that, that was something that definitely I I – knew based on previous literature that that was something that I would probably bump into uh, when doing this research uh, and talking to the individuals who were joining the communities that I was studying. Um, And it it came true that that many of these individuals felt alienated. Now, what do I mean by alienated? Well, really, there's kind of different forms of alienation. Um, uh, Benjamin Zablocki, who studied uh, communities in that countercultural wave talk about this hierarchy. I'm not sure if there's a hierarchy, but there are different forms that are very much present. Um, and I'll, I'll go briefly kind of over these forms. Uh, there's the sense of meaninglessness. I'm part of a church, but I don't, this doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know. I'm searching for something with meaning, even though I'm part of this church. Uh, there's a sense of aimlessness. I don't know where this church is going. I don't know if I want to be part of a church that doesn't seem like they're going anywhere. There's powerlessness. This church is so huge. I don't see myself really getting uh, you know, into leadership at all. There's normlessness, uh, which can be often the most um, devastating because that's where we start to see deviance occur, which is I don't know how I'm supposed to be in this church. Um or even in society at large, I don't know how I'm supposed to act in society at large. I can get confused. Can I say this? Can I not say this? Can I do this? Can I not do that? Um, and then there's this self-estrangement. And so what I found with self-estrangement is just simply um, people get detached, right? They'll show up physically, but they're completely detached, not only from the, the, the church or the society, but from themselves. They feel like, they're so, like their, their soul is, is you know, ripped out of them, so to speak. Um, and their body is present, but their soul isn't. And so I found often that, that, that uh, members of these communities that I studied identified some of these forms of alienation. Um, again, um, they would go to a church and they would feel like, I don't, I don't have a place in this church, um, so I don't want to be part of it, but I, I, I want to be faithful. I want to follow Christ. Um, and so... What happens is then they start to seek out people who also feel either powerless or aimless or normless. And as those groups start to form and coalesce, they're like, hey, 
have you been thinking about this? Like I've been thinking about this and yeah, I've been. And so they start to, to grow in terms of um, commitment to creating something different. Um, and so within, uh, you know, evangelicalism, and I'll talk about the church first and society here second. Um, it's very much just like, Hey, it's way too individual. I go to church and I can't, you know, I, I don't feel like I, I belong. I want something that's, you know, community. I want something deeper. It's so shallow, right? So this sense of aimlessness and, and normlessness and, people would say they would go to church and they just feel like I'm going through the motions, right? They feel that self estrangement. And mm -hmm. so they found other like-minded people to say, wait a second, let's be in community together where it's not shallow. It's very deep. Uh, it's so deep. It's countercultural. It's nothing like we've seen before. Um, and so that alienation can lead to, you know, intentional community formation, not only from the church, but also society at large. And this was particularly more true for, um, uh, the community Berea uh, than it was for the community of Philadelphia. Bereans often talked about how they felt estranged from uh, society. Uh, they didn't feel as though there was a place. They felt um, uh, there's a, uh, if you know, if you've heard of the Parish Collective and uh, Matt Sorens, he talks about in his books, living above place, right? And so they felt like that's what society was. They were living above place. They wanted to be rooted and grounded in some mm. sort of geography. Um, and they wanted to have that community that they couldn't find in the suburbs. So they couldn't find in their neighborhoods. Um, and so, uh, you know, yeah, you, you hear, you know, with Berea, the stories of like people just kind of like, I don't vote. I don't care about voting um, because it, uh, it, it just is, I'm so alienated uh, and powerless. Um, I don't care, but I can control where I live. I can control the the the, the uh, people I live with and the intentionality of living with people in a, in a spot. So that's how alienation, not only from the church, but also from society at large has really fed uh, intentional community formation. So uh, can you talk more then about get, getting to the two communities that you write about, their brief history and background, yeah. some key things about each one? Yeah, so Philadelphia um, uh, is a community, again, that was started in 2007, um, and uh, I started hanging around them in 2011 and 2012. Um, and they were a community that uh, formed out of a, uh, evangelical suburban evangelical wait where are these communities located yeah so technically i can't say um the, oh. in a, in a it, i think i i use the uh because it's all pseudonyms uh in, in a uh, midwest city um uh so uh but these two communities were six miles apart i mean they were both in the same city um and so geographically very similar um but um Philadelphia, which again is a pseudonym, um, they came from a suburban Bible study, uh, and there was four guys um, living together, and they said, hey, we want to have a community. And so more and more people started coming to the Bible study. Uh, they lived in a, um, in a neighborhood um, uh, of uh, this Midwestern uh, industrial city um, that was 
it was probably about 10 blocks by 10 blocks. It was a relatively small neighborhood. And they just started building more and more. Well, they started renting more and more apartments uh, in that neighborhood from that Bible study. And eventually that grew into its its own uh, 503CB or C, oh golly, whatever the the technical term for nonprofit is. Um, and they started uh, putting rules around who could be in the community and what was the, the rules being part of the community and uh, who was outside the community. Um, by the time I got to Philadelphia, um, there were about 40 uh, people. There's only two or three families um, uh, who had children. I think there's only two families with children. One family uh, was expecting a child. Um, but the rest, the other 35 uh, or so, were young adults, um, uh, late teens, early 20s. Uh, many of whom had dropped out of college to be part of the community. Um, and they were buying up houses in that neighborhood um, and uh, housing people together. And that community is what we call a common purse community. They shared everything. So um, all possessions were open down to underwear. You could share, you shared underwear. Nobody had rights to close. Um, and so everybody in that community had to work 40 hours. Um, a lot of people worked at Starbucks, uh, because they could work in the morning shift, uh, they can get insurance, medical health insurance, and then they can be in the community for the rest of the day. Um, but if you didn't have a job, if you didn't have a 40 hour job, 40 hour a week job, you work for the community. Um, and the community had a couple of businesses, a lawn care business, a construction business, or you were praying 40 hours a week. Um, so you had to have something going on for 40 hours in terms of work. Um, and again, they were pooling all their money together. So everybody had all their bills paid. If you showed up to the community and joined the community and you had a car, let's say you had a car payment, the community now paid that car payment. If you had debt, um, the community would pay part of that debt. Um, telephone, community paid for the telephone. Everybody received $100 um, in a month for allowance. So you can use that however you wanted to. If you wanted to go get coffee, you'd get a little debit card and you can go get coffee. You could buy gifts with that. Um, but if you bought something for yourself, let's say you bought a shirt, that is still part of community. So anybody could wear that shirt. Um, gifts, if your parents sent you a gas card, uh, that's part of the community now. Um, so so very much, again, very countercultural, particularly around these 20-somethings. Um, they were also connected One of the, with Philadelphia. So they started out of this uh, Bible study, but they were also connected with the um, International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Um, and so very much part of, of the charismatic movement. Um, so talked lots about uh, prophecy, um, talked lots about um, uh, kind of the, the Holy Spirit and where is the Holy Spirit impressing on us now to do, to do or to go. Um, so that was a, a, another significant part of that of that community. Berea, which was 
six miles away. They were located in a, um, uh, a uh, independent city um, that was actually surrounded by the um, larger industrial city, Midwest industrial city. Um, but they were in this independent city um, that had experienced a lot of decay. Um, and this city was a, um, uh, you know, basically was a uh, uh, lower class to lower middle class um, Appalachian community. Um, and they, uh, Bria, uh, moved intentionally into that city to create um, uh, a ministry for individuals there who lived there. Um, and uh, so they moved into the, the neighborhood called West Sharpsburg. Um, and the, the community itself started as a church plant in 1993. So it's a little bit older. Um, and they went through a intentional community phase in the, in the 2000s. So they bought um, at that time a deconsecrated uh, Catholic church uh, called St. Seton. Um, and they moved into the... Um, the parish house there at an intentional community and that kind of receded and then by the time i got there in, in 2010 that had expanded again and so there was a, a community that was living in the parish house um there was uh in the um monastery there was a urban um, retreat center um and then members of berea lived again i think 95% of them lived within three blocks of each other, right around St. Seton, which is kind of the center of their community. Um, and uh, uh, they were not a common purse community, so members had their own uh, uh, property. Even if you were in the common house, um, you had your own property. Um, you just lived together in kind of a co-housing arrangement. Um, but they were very intentional to set up um, uh, community times together. Um, they would have uh, every Friday a, a meal for the entire West Sharpsburg neighborhood. Um, they worshiped together in St. Seton um, and uh, cared for each other very much. They always knew what was going on with one another because again, they were living so close and so intentionally and it wasn't a pri private life. Um, so there was much more of an intentional association compared to a common purse. So how did they do economic sharing? Was it more traditional, like uh, you pay 10% for a tithe or what? Yeah, so even there it was, you know, very very much like a church, which is, hey, you give what you can. There's, we're not going to, there was a set of expectations uh, that if you be, were a member of Berea, you you would live into, um, but there was very little enforcement of those expectations. Um, there's very lenient community, uh, community. Um, but yeah, I mean, most people, because they had committed so much to uh, Berea already by moving into that neighborhood, again, it was a, it was a you know, a, a lower socioeconomic neighborhood. So they're committing to moving from the suburbs, you know, into these into that neighborhood and very much, uh, you know, taking care of the, the homes that were, you know, falling apart and investing in their homes. They had mortgages there. So it was hard for them to leave the community because they would have to sell their home, uh, probably, uh, you know, at not much profit. Um, and so there was, because of that 
um, economic piece, they very much maintain their their participation in the community. But sharing was very it was it was intentional in the sense of like if I needed um, to borrow a um, uh, you know a lawnmower, I would go down the street and say, hey. Um, hey, um, Henry, do you mind if I borrow your lawnmower? Um, and so Henry would be like, yeah, everybody can borrow my lawnmower. So, if, you know, there was like two lawnmowers in the entire community because they could just go get Henry's lawnmower or get Nicholas's lawnmower um, to mow the lawns. If you needed help with moving, I mean, the whole community was was on that. Um, they were there. They were helping you move. They were participating. One of the unique things about Berea is that the community supported two parish farmers. Um, hmm. And so, uh, and by supporting, I mean like subsistence type of wages. We're talking like just enough to get by. Uh, but this uh, West Sharpsburg used to be uh, a number of farms dating back over a hundred years, number of farms and, and orchards. And so these parish uh, farmers, uh, they found uh, pear trees uh, that were part of that orchard in, in people's backyards. And they would work with the owners of that residence to harvest the pears. Then um, they convinced the city to give them part of a park um, to create a community garden in. Uh, at that park, they found um, wild grapes that were part of a mm. vineyard uh, that had been there a hundred years ago. I mean, so it's just, it, it was really interesting. And so they would gather up this food, they would farm uh, different people's um, um, lots, and then they would uh, have um, nights, typically once a week during the summer, where they, whatever they had harvested, they would give back to the community for free. So the community would come and they would get um, uh, food that was harvested from the neighborhood, healthy food, um, and, and it's important to note that this neighborhood was a is considered a food desert. There's no, you know, viable grocery store um, within mm. walking distance. So, so they saw that as part of their ministry uh, to the neighborhood. And you write about religious um, agency, charisma, and authority. Yeah. How do you see that played out in these two communities? Yeah, very differently. Very differently. So Philadelphia. And, and one of the, the things before I go into talking about charisma in Philadelphia and, and authority, you do have to understand that this was a group of mostly young 20-somethings, male and female, uh, living very close to, to one another. Um, and they were very, very purposeful to prevent any sort of sexual misconduct um, that might happen there, um, just like a university does in the dorms. Um, you know, like a Christian liberal arts university, like Whitworth University, you know, it's at you know, 10 o'clock, you know, that's when males and females are separated, nothing over 10, right? Um, and, uh, um, and so they were very focused on that quite a bit because of how many young individuals were in the community. So consequently, there was a lot of authority um, that had to be heavy-handed at times um and the people in charge were Stephen and paul and they were i think they were 20 22 23 i mean these are young individuals um and 
there's a backstory about how like there was when they started the community there was an older individual who was um who was kind of discipling Stephen and paul and the older individual tried to kick them out at one point but they rallied everybody in the community and they kicked out the older individual uh and so there was like the coup attempt um and so that solidified um Stephen and paul's authority um to set these very rigid boundaries very strict boundaries now the other thing that helped uh is uh what we would consider in sociology chrisms um these otherworldly abilities um so for example when members talked about paul he was always known as the person who could pray and the prayers would come true right Stephen prophecy he had this gift of prophecy he could see uh through the you know by the inspiration of the holy spirit the future of the community and and so these chrisms gave a charismatic power to Stephen and paul and as people identified these chrisms to Stephen and paul they allowed them to have that authority they saw them as as chosen um to lead the community even though some of the individuals grew up with them like went to elementary school and played with them on the playground and and you know by the time they got to the community it was oh they are gifted right they are chosen to be uh, our leaders um and um and so that you know allowed Stephen and Paul to really be unquestioned um in their authority uh and so uh they were very strict uh, now I'll go into a, a minute here about, well, I'll tell you a story and then I'll go into kind of how strictness supports vitality. Um, so kind of how strict were they? So uh, one of my favorite stories comes from um, a member of Philadelphia named Miriam. And Miriam um, uh, joined the community while it was still a Bible study. She'd been there for a while. And um, she was 24. 425 uh, when I interviewed her and she had talked about how one night she fell asleep um, cuddling uh, another a male member of the community and they were uh, alone um, in this room and they just fell asleep cuddling um, nobody saw them. nobody knew about it uh, they woke up they separated went their own ways they were very, very um, convicted by that. And so what they decided to do was to confess, even though they didn't need to, they could have you know, shelved it and nobody would have known. Um, so they went to Stephen, to Paul, and they confessed, we fell asleep cuddling together. Uh, and so Stephen and Paul said, okay, well, here's your, your discipline. Um, you cannot be in the same room together for six months. So their worship service, can't be in the same room. You got to pick days that you'll be in the worship service together. Um, you know, and this is a, a community again of 40 people, so it's not like huge. Um, and um, you also, if you are in any meetings together, Stephen and Paul had to be there. Um, and then after six months, we will prayerfully reconsider. And so it was. Um, it was a, a bitter, you know, Marion described this as like, it was, it was tough uh, to live out that, you know, that 
type of discipline. Six months not being in a room together in a community of 40, that's hard. Uh, not talking uh, to one another, that's hard. Um, but of course, she frames it as ultimately it's good for me. It's good for my relationship with Jesus and submission is important. And um, But that's the type of strictness that was part of, of uh, Philadelphia. Now, there is a, a, a lot of research on how that type of strictness, strict theology or strict behavioral expectations actually leads to vitality, to individual staying. When an individual has to give up a lot um, in order to be part of a church or in this case, a community, they want to recoup that investment. And so no matter how difficult the expectations might be or unachievable the expectations might be, when they give up something, being in a room with somebody that you might have affection for for six months, they want to see that payoff. Um, giving up all of your income to uh, be you know, in this community, you want to see that paid off. Because if you leave the community, you're not getting any of that income back, right? So you want to get the payoff. So there are, you know, you know, very strict churches uh, uh, that have highly committed people, have lots of stayers, and that's their vitality is because they set up these expectations um, that when people have to give up something, abstain from something, they want to get that investment back to them mm. somehow. So that's. You know, I, I kept asking, why don't you leave? Like, I mean, it's, if it's that hard, why don't you just leave? And she's like, well, you know, ultimately, I think this is good for me. Um, and, you know, my again, my my submission to, to, to Christ as represented in submission to Paul and Stephen. And so she was very much trying to recoup that. Like, I benefit from learning about submission. Um, and so that's kind of that, that idea of how strictness relates to vitality. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, and then you also talk more about in-group and out-group uh, orientation. How does that yeah. work? Yeah, so this was something that was present in Philadelphia. It was not present in Berea. Um, and this is this comes back, I think, to some of the larger arrangements that we see uh, on the religious landscape uh, within the United States and this idea of tribalism. Um, and so the in-group, out-group dynamic has been studied for decades now. And it's simply this, it's that when people feel part of the in-group, when they have this loyalty to some sort of group, they want to know that they belong to that group. They're committed to that group in reference to some sort of out-group. Okay? So in the case of Philadelphia, uh, this is 2012, right? So this is, um, you know, kind of in that midst of, of Iraq, Afghanistan, there was a lot of talk about we aren't them, right? We aren't Muslims. Right? We're not like Islamic fundamentalists. A lot of very intentional talk about that. And remember, this is a group of 40 people living in this Midwestern city who've never probably traveled to any sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, Islamic country, right? Or have very little interactions with um, uh, Islamic individuals. And yet they kept talking about that. Um, and they had a guest speaker come in 
And I, I was blown away by this when the guest, the very first words the guest speaker said, and he, this guest speaker was from England, uh, and it was part of that um, uh, International House of Prayer network. But the guest speaker said, you know what's wrong with our society? And he said, Muslims. And it's like, what? Like, where where is this coming from? Other than what it does is it directs individuals in that community to be like, yeah, we're not like them, right? We're, hmm. we're something different. And you need to be committed to that difference. Because if you're anything like uh, anybody else, you're not part of our group, right? And that helps understand like this idea of tribalism, right? If you think anything different, then you're not part of our group. And you've invested so much of your life into our group. Why would you give that up? So on one hand, you had that, that outgroup. The other outgroup were um, very vague, but other Christians, you know, other Christians. They wouldn't necessarily name that other, right? They wouldn't say, oh, Episcopalians or Methodists or even mainline. It was just other Christians. Um, so that could include other evangelical Christians as well. But, you know, they would often talk about, we're not like other Christians, Right. And so what that does is that sets, you know, these other Christ followers up as the outgroup and you commit to our group because you're not like them. Uh, hmm. And you invest yourself into our group and you want to recoup those investments, not by going back to the groups we came from, but by staying with us. Right. So that in-group, out-group dynamic is very much part of vitality as well. So uh, that must have come up in one way or another at Berea. They must have been aware of that dynamic and decided we're not going to go there. So they had some intentionality about that? Yeah, they were very, you know, if Philadelphia was on one end of uh, a strictness spectrum, they were at the far end of strictness. Berea was at the lenient end. Um, they had a set of expectations. And I would ask, you know, what happens if somebody doesn't live in into those expectations, like they don't tithe. And people are like, eh, I don't know, we might suggest they look for something else, but we're not going to push them out. You know, it's so very lenient. Now, what's interesting is then how does a lenient community create vitality, right? And for Berea, there was a charismatic element the charisma wasn't in the individual, wasn't in Nicholas, who was the pastor. It was in the building. It was in the neighborhood, uh, which is, you know, academically, that's where I had the most critique is by saying, hey, the charisma for Berea was in this beautiful but broken building. It was a decaying uh, Catholic church. It was, it was gorgeous, but, you know, you had water damage, you had plaster falling, um, it wasn't heated. It wasn't cooled. So if you're in the summer, you're sweating through a worship service. If you're in the winter, um, you were bundled up in winter jackets and you can see your breath. Um, and uh, but they, that was their totem. Emil Durkheim, who um, brought up some of these ideas of charisma and, you know, how do we uh, think about religion? And he argued that religion very much is a, a worship of its own society and they use totems to do that well here's this totem this um, church um, that was very much the center of the community's charisma 
um, and uh, and the neighborhood. People wanted that place. They wanted to have. Um, uh, they, again, these were individuals who were alienated because they felt like they had lived above place. So now they want to be committed to a place, to a plot of ground um, in those three blocks in West Sharpsburg. So that was really where their vitality was centered. Consequently, because their vitality was centered on the place, on the the uh, on St. Seton, uh, and the, what it represented uh, for their community, they didn't have to be strict. They could be pretty lenient um, because they found vitality within that local ecology or what I call the, the parish consciousness for them. Um, and the other thing is they didn't have as many 20-somethings. They had a much wider range. I was going to ask about yeah. that. I got the impression that they were more diverse in they age. They were diverse, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, in your conclusion, you're writing about um, you summarize the structural, organizational and individual con- conditions that affect the vitality in these two communities. So how did you sum those up? Yeah. So um, the, with Philadelphia, right, you do have obviously, as we mentioned, kind of this cultural in-group, out-group dynamic. You have strictness. But what's really interesting about Philadelphia and I write about this in the in the book. This is probably my favorite scene um, in the book. Uh, even though it's it's funny um, when people read the book and they read about Philadelphia and they're like, "Oh, those are," you know, I would not want to be part of Philadelphia. It's like, well, I get that, but understand like there's also these beautiful parts. So this is a my favorite part that I write about in the book. So Philadelphia during the worship services would have a worship style called harp and bowl which was adopted from the International House of Prayer worship style. And it is uh, what we call antiphonal singing. Um, So the band would be playing um, some sort of repeated rift, right? Set of chords. Um, And then everybody else would be singing their own lyrics. Um, And uh, sometimes you'd hear people speaking in tongues because, you know, they, they, they honored, um, uh, that type of, of um, uh, theology. You had people who would just be saying Jesus, 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 Jesus over and over, like in, in some sort of chant. Um, other people might be singing song, the words to the actual song. Um, but there was a point where um, I uh, closed my eyes during one of these worship services and um, and I just sat there and just listened and it it was beautiful and i was moved to tears um because of how beautiful that that antiphonal singing was with the with the band and i could just see like people getting into what you know again uh emil durkheim was a sociologist talked about the collective effervescence this kind of like feeling of of collectivity and everybody's together and yet what's so interesting about uh, harp and bowl is that it's individuals saying their own things right so it's this collective yet individuated form of uh, faith expression and i think that's that goes back to some of those you know when we talk about the structural organizational and individual aspects that philadelphia was a very individuated um community they were strict organizationally but people could express 
freely their own um, commitments to Jesus um, in the worship, in the community, as long as it jived with everything else, with the boundaries of the community. And, um, and so there was this, uh, it really captured, I think, um, at that time, how young adults were thinking about religion, individuated, but yet very much connected to a community. And they stayed with the community because of how strict it was. So those are some of the things that were happening there with Philadelphia. With Berea, um, it was really much about the place. Uh, matter of fact, I, I even asked one of the, the, the questions I asked to people was, you know, uh, how could you ever see yourself moving? And I asked this to both Philadelphia and to Berea. And Philadelphians were always like, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe a couple weren't, but most of them are like, yeah, it's this neighborhood, whatever. We're going to take it over. We're going to, our whole community is going to own this whole neighborhood. That was kind of their prophecy. But yeah, we can leave. With Berea, it was like, no. I mean, maybe again, one or two people said, yeah, we could leave. But most people are like, we can't. Like, that is where we are called to. And we are called mm-hmm. not just to worship here, but to live here, to recreate here, to work here. So Berea had a lot of um, businesses that were started and were operating out of West Sharpsburg because they had this, again, this what I call parish consciousness. Their, their theology was grounded in the actual space itself. Um, and they saw St. Seton as this beautiful picture of the, the the crucifixion of this church that's dying. And yet they were there to resurrect, you know, the neighborhood, um, not in a kind of colonial sense of we're here to, you know, keep the neighborhood, um, to, to make the, to gentrify the neighborhood. They were very aware that they kind of fell on that line of are we gentrifying or not, but it was more of a, we're here to resurrect the things that make this neighborhood so great, such as those pear trees or those wild grapes, or you know, the the um, community coming together on a Friday night and whatever they can share um, and give to one another, whether it's craft macaroni and cheese or tamales, great, let's bring it and let's eat together and be together. So um, very different way of thinking about vitality, but effective. It's very effective for Berea. So with all your experience as a church planter and a pastor and a sociologist, all this research, what would you say to churches today, to the church today, in terms of how to encourage authentic spiritual religious vitality? Yeah, I mean, I think, and what I tell churches, and I I work with um, uh, different churches through our Office of Church Engagement here, is to, number one, really uh, flesh out, have the Holy Spirit guide you in terms of what is the church's mission. Um, and I think that's really important to to know because uh, often, um, you know, when I talk to a church that uh, is uh, is getting older, right, is really fearful of, of shutting down um, and, they're also not willing to be like, oh, I want to, you know, or I should say they're, they're timid in terms of saying, we want to get young people in here. And my, what I say is, yeah, you don't have to get young people into the church. That's, I mean, 
there are different forms of vitality. It's not just about the joining, but you have to be very intentional about what God is calling that church to. So if you're a church of, you know, 50 somethings, okay, great. What is God calling 50 somethings to do right now? Um, because living out that mission, right, will help keep people committed to that church. Right? As they invest themselves into the mission, people will stay or people will hear about the mission of the church and will come uh, and join the church. So it really does, I think, first start with mission. What is the, the church called to? And then from there, um, I think churches do need to be very intentional about strategies. Now, I'm not saying go out and start branding your church. I'm not saying that. That's not. Um, that's only one form of strategy. Um, but I was working with the church um, that uh, is a Presbyterian church, and um, they uh, had a history where their primary, you know, the the the, um, the primary growth happened around the baby boom, um, and then kind of since the '80s have been slowly dying away, having what I call natural attrition in the congregation, and now they're about 50 people. Um, where once they were 300 and yeah. so this church is like okay what do we do right what you know we live in many different parts of the city because those who are committed uh, drive into the church and i you know i said you know what's your church's mission and their mission was pretty generic so they didn't quite have an idea of where they want where they were being called uh, to or what they were being called to do um and they did have um, some resources dedicated to uh, parish farming. Um, and so they had a, a guy who was doing some of that kind of on the side um, as a ministry of the church. And it's like, okay, well, think about like where God is working with um, uh, the ministry is called Growing Neighbors. Think about where God is, is working with Growing Neighbors. And could that be more of what this church is being called to do? Um and so there was some hemming and hawing, like, uh, we don't know if we don't know, like that, you know, and so they kind of hemmed and hauled and they said, you know what, I don't think we're going to do this anymore. Um, and, and my sense was that they didn't want to be, they didn't want to think about strategy in that sense. Uh, mm. I wasn't saying go out and, you know, get a bunch of coffee mugs and t-shirts and brand yourself. I was saying, Hey, where's God calling you to? And what is your mission? And there was this reticence, almost like God's going to save us. God's going to save us. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe the church will have a revival. I'm, I'm not saying the Holy spirit can't do that at all. I'm just saying that if that's the case, it'd be really, really rare. It'd be an exception for sure. Um, so I think that's the thing. Those are the kind of the two things is think about, um what you're called to do authentically called to do and then be strategic in terms of living out that mission well i really appreciate your perspective as a church planner pastor sociologist that um, you're seeing this from the you know very concrete way but also a more theoretical and yeah. studied way so 
Um, thank you so much for your time. I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been looking at Intentional Christian Community with Dr. Mark Killian. So uh, check out his book. Um, follow the link below. It's Religious Vitality in Christian Intentional Communities, a Comparative Ethnic Study. Ethnographic Study, excuse me. All righty. So, um, Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks for having me. All right. Peace to everyone. <laughs>